name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I plan out my preaching schedule. I used to try to do it a year in advance. I found out that was kind of far, and I uh, didn't always stick to it, so I, I cut, don't quite look out that far, you know. But I had planned something for December. But as I sat at my desk this week, I, I felt like I wanted to do something different. I, uh, I really wanted to do something that I felt like might inspire us with joy, might bring joy to our hearts. And I don't, I don't mean to say, I don't mean this like it sounds when I say I wanted to do something light, but I wanted to do something kind of light, you know, for, for lack of a better way of describing what I wanted to do. And, and I really wanted this month to be a time where maybe we could just infuse each other by the Spirit with joy. And in fact, I asked Beverly and, uh, and Angie if they would decorate the stage for us. And so the stage has been decorated by them. And, and part of that was... And part of that was to just help us sense the joy of the, of the season. Hope that's okay. As I sat at my desk, though, I, I almost immediately knew when I decided I wasn't going to do what I'd planned, I almost immediately knew what I wanted to do. And that was that I wanted to, to take a Christmas carol every Sunday and talk about that Christmas carol and, and look at, at the Christmas in the Christmas carol. My wife asked me if I thought of that on my own, and I, no, I didn't. I mean, it's, it's out there. I mean, I've heard it over the years that pastors have done something like that. But as I sat at my desk, it came to me. And, uh, and even the title came to me, Christmas and the Carols. And so that's what we're going to do for these weeks of, of December. We're going to look at four different Christmas carols, maybe five, even on Christmas Eve. I'm not sure yet about that one. But at least for the next four Sundays, we're going to look at four different Christmas carols. And, uh, and we're going to see Christmas in those carols. You may not know this, but Christmas carols have been around for a long time, but maybe not as long as you might think. Like so many Christian traditions, singing was a part of the pagan winter solstice celebration. And when the church decided to claim the winter celebration by making it the birth of Jesus, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that's wrong, right, or indifferent. We don't know when Jesus was born, but the church way back when kind of took December 25th, the winter solstice time, and, and made that the, the birth of Jesus. And so we kind of took over the winter solstice celebrations, if you would. So Christians, singing was a part of those pagan rituals. And Christians, they, they've liked to sing, and so they started singing Christian songs then rather than, than pagan songs. In time, Christians began to write and create songs about the birth of Jesus. One of the earliest Christmas carols was written 1410. I'm sure there have been maybe some others that were earlier. Maybe one of this is one of the maybe earlier English uh, carols. I'm not sure. 1410. Only a small fragment of that carol remains. And it seems like the song was mostly about Mary and Joseph and Jesus meeting different people in Bethlehem. 
Most of the carols that came out of that time and forward during the Elizabethan era or period, they, were, they would tell stories and they would be loosely, and I say loosely, based on the Christmas story. They would be about the Jesus family and they were mostly for entertainment rather than worshipful songs. I would, uh, I would say they're probably more akin to chestnuts roasting on the open fire or uh, those kind of things, you know, but maybe with a little bit more somewhat biblical content than, than the chestnut song. And, uh, and they were usually sung in homes and not sung in church as part of, uh, as part of worship. When uh, the Puritans came to power in England in the 16, mid-1600s, they outlawed the celebration of Christmas and the singing of Christmas carols was forbidden. But just like so many other things that the government asked us not to do, people still did them anyway, right? And they sang, they sang their Christmas carols in their homes, but they remained mainly unsung publicly for the next hundred, uh, a couple hundred years, actually, until the mid, mid-19th century, mid-1800s. More and more in our own culture, let's be honest, more and more in our own culture, we sing less of the Christian Christmas carols and more of the just entertainment Christmas songs that are out there. We sing uh, of the chestnuts roasting on the open fire, and we sing of Frosty, and we sing of uh, Grandma getting run over by reindeer. (laughs) But how low we stooped, haven't we, when it comes to (laughs) the Christmas songs? In the church, we still sing the carols, um, and I think it's a good way for us to remember what we've associated with this time, which is the birth of the Lord Jesus. I think in singing Christmas carols that are theologically uh, about the birth of Jesus, these are helping us remember that God, at this season anyway, we celebrate the fact that God became, became one of us. Just a, just a side note on our culture. I don't know if y'all watched the lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree uh, this year, but I happened to watch that. It was kind of strange. They had all these singers and all these songs, and they would sing. And you know, normally how the, cha- the crowds cheer afterwards, there were no crowds. There was no cheering. They would just end the song. But, but the part that I wanted you to note, if you didn't see it, was there was only one song that I would have considered. I didn't see it all, but there was only one song that I would have considered a Christmas a Christian Christmas song. It was by Pentonix, but it really wasn't even a Christmas song. It was, uh, man, I can't remember the song. It was a wonderful song. Couldn't believe they were putting it on, on national TV, right? But it was, uh, but that was the only song that had anything to do, I felt like, with Christ and, and the birth of Jesus. So our culture is getting away from singing the, the carols that once were the bulwark of our Christmas celebration as Western Christians or as Westerners even. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to look at a Christmas carol, and we're going to see Christmas in it. And some of the carols are deeply rooted, uh, theologically, they're deeply rooted in the scriptures, and probably none more so than the one we're going to look at this morning, which is called Joy to the World. And I know, even when I wrote that in my notes, Joy to the World, makes you kind of just want to sing, doesn't it? You know, Joy to the World, uh, or that other Joy song, Joy to the World, and whatever, the fishes in the deeper sea. <laughs> I'm dating myself there, but... Uh, Yeah, that's the one right there. So Joy to the World was written by Sir Isaac Watts in 1719. And uh, the music that we sing it by today was written over 100 years after that by a composer by the name of Lowell Mason. Now, Isaac Watts is known as the father of modern hymnody. 
because when he was coming along, the Church of England, all they sang was the Old Testament Psalter translated into English. So they just sang the Old Testament Psalms. He was very dissatisfied with that. He, he would tell his father how much he hated that. And his father would say to him, well, you need to do something about it. And so he did, actually. He wrote, the, the, if you would, the, he wrote songs from not an Old Testament perspective, but from a Christian Christ has come perspective. When uh, Thomas Bradbury criticized him for what he was doing, he said of Thomas, I mean, of Sir Isaac Watts, he said, you're trying to replace David, King David. Here's what Watts responded, and I quote, I have rather expressed myself as I may suppose King David would have done if he lived in the days of Christianity. And by this means, perhaps I have sometimes hit upon the truth intent of the Spirit of God in those verses David wrote farther and clearer than David himself could have discovered. You tell me that I rival it with David, whether he or I be the sweet psalmist of Israel. I abhor that thought, while yet at the same time I am fully persuaded that the Jewish psalm book was never designed to be the only psalter of the Christian church. So, sir, we, we owe an awful lot to Sir Isaac Watts because he was really the, the opening gate, if you would, for believing that God would still inspire new songs today. And, of course, we are, we're living in a day where God is inspiring songs, we believe, through all kinds of, of writers. Now, Sir Isaac Watts did not have a problem with the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. In fact, listen to this. He wrote an entire hymn book based on the Psalms. And Joy to the World is Sir Isaac Watts' interpretation of Psalm 98. You may have heard that before. You probably don't remember it most of the time when you're singing the song. But it's, it's, a, it's his interpretation of Psalm 98. And so I thought a good place to begin in our study of the song, of this carol would be to look at Psalm 98. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. I'm going to read it for us. I'm going to begin to read Psalm 98. Sing a new song, King David. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him the victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant, shout for joy, and sing. Sing to the Lord with a lyre and with a lyre and melodious song. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord our King. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. Now, the theme of Psalm 98, if you didn't catch it, was this. Sing to the Lord, shout to the Lord. Sing and shout to the Lord, for he has won the victory. Now, the Jews of David's day and following, they all said this is a psalm about the final redemption. This is about the coming of Messiah. This is about when he comes and he sets up his final kingdom. That's what they thought Psalm 98 was about. And if you go back with that mindset and look at Psalm 98, you see that David says some things about that victory that Messiah would have. He would say we should celebrate it and do it big. And he said to do it with lots of instruments. 
And he said to do it not just big, but do it loud with the trumpets and the ram's horns blast. And he said, do it all. Do it all the earth, he said. Let the whole earth, and not just people in all the earth, but all of creation was to shout for joy. And in Psalm 98, David says, this is why we should do that when it happens, because God will have done wonders in this victory, and he will have given us the victory, and he will have revealed his righteousness to the nations, and he, rem- he will have remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel and revealed it to all the nations, and because God will judge and rule the world in righteousness and fairly. That's what David said in Psalm 98. We should shout, we should sing because God's going to do it. God's going to bring his victory when he brings his Messiah. That's what the Jews all thought this meant. So Sir Isaac Watts read Psalm 98 and he said, guess what? David was looking forward to it, but we're looking back on it. It's already come to pass. And so he wrote joy to the world as his interpretation of Psalm 98 having been fulfilled. Now, Isaac Watts wasn't writing a Christmas carol, everyone. He wasn't writing something to celebrate the birth of Jesus. He was writing his his song to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 98, that the coming of Jesus fulfills everything that David was looking forward to and saying, we should sing and shout for joy because this is what God will do. Isaac Watts looks back and says, we should sing and shout for joy because this is what God has done. Again, this isn't a Christmas song per se, but we have, we have claimed it as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, as we walk our way through the song this morning, we're going to note that Sir Isaac Watts gives us four reasons to shout for joy. Let's look at them. The first reason that we should shout and sing for joy is that Jesus has come. And it's his first verse. Look at the verse. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Isaac recognized that the reason we sing and shout for joy today, the reason we should sing and shout for joy today is because God has come. Messiah has come. Jesus has come. And in fact, that's what we're celebrating here at Christmas every year. We're celebrating the fact that God has come. What do we mean by that? We mean that, and, and the Jews didn't understand this. We understand it today because we're looking back through the, through the lens that Isaac was looking back through. David and them didn't see it, but we see it and know it today. What it meant that Messiah would come, what it meant that God would come, was that God would become one of us. And the big theological word for that is incarnation. That's the word we use. It comes from the Latin word carne, which means flesh. God became a person. God took on our human being, our human flesh, if you would. Now, one thing I want you to understand, I want you to never forget, because I'm telling you, it's, not in just, it's just in my old age that this reality has really riveted itself to my understanding, and that is that, that Jesus became one of us forever, everyone. He didn't just, it wasn't like he jumped into our human body and rode around in it like a car for 33 years. And then he got out and he jumped into another car to drive around in for the rest of eternity. No, the Bible says that he actually took on our human nature, our human being. And listen, 
and he's, and he's not getting rid of it. He's, he's never going to divest himself of it. He's always going to have it. Now, we don't believe that he surrendered his divinity, his divine nature, in taking on our human nature. But, but this is a forever sort of thing. This past week, I was, I don't know how it came up or how I found it, but I was listening to Nabil Qureshi, and he was talking about our understanding of, of God. Nabil Qureshi has, has since passed away, but he was a Muslim who came to Christ and became an apologist. And he was talking about God, and he says, God is one in being and three in persons. He said, if we said that God was one person and three persons at the same time, that would be a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction to say that God is, is one being, but he is three persons. And then he went on to say, it's sort of like us. We are, uh, we are a, the, the, a being, the being is what I am. The person is who I am. So he said, I, as far as being is concerned, he used himself as an analogy. He says, I am a human being. That's what I am. That means that I have, as a human being, I have an, an outer man, if you would. I have my body, but I have an inner man also, the immaterial part of me, my consciousness, my, my personality, all of those things. And he said, and that makes me a human being. He said, but who I am is Nabil Qureshi. So the what I am is a human being. The who I am is Nabil. So if I were to say the, the what I am is a human being, the who I am is Jimmy Acri, okay? But Nabil went on to say, now as a human being, I, I am one being, but I am one person. I, I told our new members class this morning that if I was one being and thought I was more than one person, I'd be schizophrenic or there'd be a problem with me, right? Because every human being is just one person. But listen, God is one being, but he is three distinct persons. And by being, I mean his nature. He has always been. He's uncreated. He is eternal in essence. You say, well, where did he come from? That's part of his being, right? And he has the ability in his being to create whatever he wants to create just by thinking it and speaking it. This is his being. But this one being is three distinct persons. We call them Father, Spirit, Son, Son, Father, Spirit. We call them, that's their, these three distinct persons. Now when we say, and Sir Isaac Watts says, God has come, he has come, what we mean by that is that this second person of the one God being, he chose to couple himself with our human being. He, he, he chose to somehow bring his divine being and in in, in, in our human being together in himself so that he became different. He, he took on, he, he had flesh and bone. He he even today has a body where the Spirit and the Father do not have bodies. Jesus is different. He's taken on our human being without giving up his divine being. So how can that be? I don't know. There's too many things that are mysteries, but this is who he is. And when we say, when, when Sir Isaac Watts sings or we sing that he became one, what we're singing is that God became like us and entered into our world. God's being 
associated, connected itself to our being so that the Son now is going to be that forever. Have you ever thought, and I'm sure you probably have, but have you ever thought, why would God do that? Why, why would this eternal being lower himself? Because think about it for a minute. If there's a being over here that's always existed, who's eternal, who's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-creative, why would that being choose to couple himself with the being of one of his creatures? Why would he ever do that? I mean, that's a big mystery. I mean, the psalmist asked in Psalm 8, why, why have you, you know, uh, why did you make us just slightly lower than yourself? And now that's, that's not a good analogy. But why did he do this? Well, here, the Bible tells us why God did it, believe it or not. God did it because of his great love for us, his creature. That's, that's why he says he did it. For God so loved the world. For God, God is love, John says in in 1 John. Why did he do it? It's because he loved his creatures. And out of his love for his creatures, he wanted to rescue us from our impending deaths because of sin. He wanted to do it because he loved us. He wanted to rescue us. But why did he want to do all of that? Because the Bible says he wants a relationship with us. He made us so that we could autonomous, in my estimation anyway, autonomously relate to him as, as a son or as a daughter. That's why he did it. And so Sir Isaac Watts in his song, he looks, he looks, we're looking back and he says, David was shouting for joy because he was coming. We're shouting for joy because he has come. And the one who has come is God. And he says, this is what we should do. And he gives us three responses in his song. The first one is this, let all the earth receive her king. This is a general statement. When we sing joy to the world, we're saying to everyone who's listening, Receive your king because Jesus is king over all. This is a universal call that goes out to all people to receive King Jesus. But then he makes it personal. Here's the second thing he says. Let every heart prepare him room. And I, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I can't help but think, do you think maybe Sir Isaac Watts has in mind when Jesus, I mean, Joseph and Mary show up at, uh, at the innkeeper's door and there's no room in the end? Because this is what he says, let every heart make him room. And, and so if the first thing is a universal call, this is a specific thing. And you, you make room for him in your heart. And then the third thing he says, let all of heaven and nature sing. And you know where he gets this? This is Psalm 98. This is what David was saying. Let us sing, let us shout, let us do with the instruments, let's do with the ram horn and the trumpets. Let's sing because he's coming. And Isaac says, let's sing now. Let's sing to the Lord with joy because he has come. Let all of heaven and all of nature, let it all sing to the Lord because it has been fulfilled. Let everything that has breath sing to the Lord. Sing, everyone. Sing. Add your voice to the anthem of the universe is what Sir Isaac Watts is saying. The second reason for joy is that he has come. The second reason for joy is that Jesus, the Savior, reigns. Here's the second verse. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. 
Man, I know you remember this from our talk on the, our series on the kingdom of God, but the good news of the gospels, the good news of the gospels was that the kingdom of God has arrived because the king is in town, because Jesus, the king, has come. He's, he reigns, and, and he, he's, he reigns over everything. And so Watt says, this is why all of us should sing and shout for joy. Now, I want to read you. I want to read you what happened to Jesus after he ascended back into heaven. You remember the testimony of the disciples were, or was, that they watched Jesus disappear into the clouds, right? And as they watched him disappear to the clouds, a couple of angels were there and said, guys, what are you looking at? And, they, and they're up there. He said, don't, don't. Hey, when he comes back, you'll see him. Now get to work is basically what they said. But what happened when Jesus left their sight? The prophet Daniel tells us in his book, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he had a vision. God showed him what happened. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. That's the name of the first person of the God being. The Ancient of Days, and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So here's what happened. Jesus ascends, and he comes before the Father, and now Jesus, who is the God being, coupled himself with human being, now he walks into the presence of the Father, and it says that as he's escorted before the Father, the Ancient of Days, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and every, a kingdom of every people and nation and language to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. He reigns. And Sir Isaac Watts is looking back and he says, Jesus is reigning. He's reigning in heaven now. And he reigns in our lives today. He wants to reign in our lives today, those of us that own him as king. And he's returning one day to rule over all the earth. Now notice, look at the verse again. It should be on the screen. Put it back on the screen. Put that verse back up there if you would, please. So in the verse, notice what Sir Isaac Watts says. He says... Let me go back and read it. He says, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. What does that mean? He says this, guys, we should lift up our songs with joy, resonating with, reverberating and resonating with joy that our God reigns. We should employ our songs to let the world know that Jesus reigns. It has been my deep conviction for a long time, and, uh, and I think most of you know this, or a lot of you know this anyway. It is my deep conviction that when we gather on Sunday mornings, there ought to be an aspect to our gathering that just fills us with joy. I mean, it's all right for us to be reflective and to be somber and sober. I, I am not saying that's wrong. What I am saying is that when we get together, though, there ought to be at least part of this time that is devoted to letting joy flow because our God has come and our God reigns. And notice Watt says this, let your joy, let your songs of joy, your songs of praise, let them be added to the songs of creation. He says, because the rocks and the fields and the plains and the floods, they're all singing praise and their joy that Jesus reigns. 
So when we sing that song and you sing that line, you're saying, I'm going to add my voice to all the rocks and the rivers and the floods and the trees and the mountains. I'm going to add my voice to theirs and I am going to sing with joy that my Savior reigns. He reigns from heaven. He reigns in my heart and he will reign over all things one day. The third, the third reason for joy that Isaac gives us in his song, he says, because Jesus is restoring the earth to her paradise, her paradise state, restoring her to her paradise state, her pre-sin condition. Here's the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Now, here's what Sir Isaac Watts is alluding to. He's alluding to the fact that when Adam fell, when Adam sinned against God, there were repercussions to his sin. One of them was that we all die. Another one is that our nature was bent towards sin so that we all become sinners uh, of our own. But there's something else that happens here because of Adam's sin. And the Bible says that the earth was affected by Adam's sin. That our work, that, that the earth was cursed. And that for those of us that work the ground, that you're, you're going to have to toil in that. It's not, evidently it was easier prior to the fall of Adam. God changed it. The earth is in a curse. The, Romans chapter 8. If, you want to take, if you're taking notes, write this down. Go out and read it. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8 that when Jesus comes back, he's, he's healing all of that that was cursed and broken. That is what Sir Isaac Watts is alluding to in this third verse. All right? Um, the earth is fighting against us. Childbearing became painful. Those are just a couple of ramifications. Now, Sir Isaac Watts says that with the advent of Jesus, the curse was being removed. So he says we should shout and sing for joy because the curse is being removed. Far, and, and as far as his blessings, his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And by the way, the curse is found to the far corners of the globe. I mean, the curse is found everywhere, right? And so as far as, as far as the curse is found, there's where the blessings of Jesus are going to flow. Now, we need to note something here. Um, Sir Isaac Watts had a, what we in theology call a post-millennialist view of what was going to happen in the future. So let me define that for you just so you know. There's, and I'm just going to take this one view. There's other views. But one of them is that the gospel, the, the power of the gospel would be so transformative that as history marched along, things would get better and better and better. And eventually all sin would be done away with. And Jesus would come back and step, in, step into his kingdom that had been totally redeemed by the gospel. That was called post-millennialism. And honestly, up until, I guess, the 1800s, most, most Christians after the Reformation would have been post-millennial. They would have thought everything's going to get, the gospel's going to be victorious and everything's going to get better and better and better. Of course, today, um, the, the other view would be, pre, another view would be premillennialism, which would say, you know, so many premillennialists would say, no, just the opposite is true, that it's not going to get better and better and better. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And Jesus is going to come back when it's at its very lowest point. So I, I don't think the Bible teaches that the world's going to get better and better and better. But by the same token, I don't necessarily believe the Bible teaches that the world's going to get worse and worse either. 
But here's what I want you to understand about what Watts was saying in that, because I believe Watts is right. Even though he's not right that he, that he thinks the whole earth is going to be redeemed by the gospel prior to Jesus coming back. I don't think he's right about that. I think he is right in what we sing in this verse. And that is that Jesus came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. I think, I think he's absolutely right that with the advent of Jesus coming, there was a change. The spirit of God came and the blessings of Jesus are flowing to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't think thorns are going away. I don't think all sorrows are going away. And I don't think all sin is going away prior to the return of Jesus when he comes again and establishes his kingdom. But I do believe that the grace of Jesus has come and his blessings are flowing to the far corners of the world, wherever the curse is found. Jesus' blessings are flowing to the ends of the earth. And can I tell you something else as you sing this song? I think you and I are to be agents of those blessings. Well, I think, you know, like I said, trying to, um, maybe Isaac Watts didn't necessarily mean it this way. Maybe he did, right? That we were going to be the agents of that blessings. I, I don't see how we would make the thorns go away and all that kind of stuff. But, but I do believe he thought we would be the agents of God's blessing going to the four corners of the earth. And so when I think about us following Jesus, we should not let sin grow in our lives. And I know that's really hard. It's hard not to be a sinner. I mean, we have the Spirit of God, but we still have an old nature, and there's always this pull. And, you know, but hey, listen, we need to fight against sin and not let sin grow in our lives. That's what the verse says. You remember it? It says, uh, no more let sins and sorrows grow. So, you know, we need to not let sin grow in our life. And then this other thing that Isaac said was, and, and sorrows grow. Don't let sorrows grow. And I tell you what, I, I think we can actually have something to try to curtail the sorrows, um, you know, of this world. I thought about all the systemic sorrows of this world. And I thought of certain people. Take Mother Teresa, for instance. Her whole life fighting against poverty. As a follower of Jesus, she's trying to fight against poverty. William Wilberforce, fighting against slavery his entire life. Franklin Graham, fighting against abortion, you know, most of his ministry. We should be agents of God's kingdom, bringing his blessing everywhere. We should be seeking to remove the sorrow of poverty, of human trafficking, of sorrow wherever we find it. We should be trying to change that because of what? Because our king reigns, because he lives within us, because he wants us to be agents of his blessings. Listen, everybody, when Jesus comes, the future kingdom is going to be so wonderful. No more sin and sorrow and thorns. No more death. None of that stuff that hurts and pains us. It's all going to be... And, and again, how do, you even, how do we even envision a world like that? It's hard to know, but that's what God's promised us, right? But listen to me. It's not that we sit around doing nothing, waiting for that. Jesus wants you and me to be agents of transformative grace in the lives of everyone around us. He wants us to be, we're supposed to be Christians, right? What does Christian mean? 
Little Jesus is right, little Christ. We're supposed to be changing. I, I can't change the world necessarily, but I can try to change my corner. I can try to change my neighborhood. I can try to love my neighbors. And, and I can even do more than that. I can do my part to try to change these big evils in the world. Maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, I, I, I guess got to mention her name. Y'all are going to have to help me. Sherry, what's Sherry's last name? Uh, lives here in Surrey. Yeah. I mean, her, her whole adult life has been, I think, devoted towards fighting against the wrong of killing children in the womb. And I mean, she's relentless about it. So, Sheriff, if you're listening, you know, on behalf of all of us, thank you for, for what you do. But, you know, Maybe we're not all called to be exactly like Sherry or Wilberforce or Mother Teresa, but you know what? We're all called to have a part in this, to change the world. And I think that's what Sir Isaac Watts was implying in the verse, right? I mean, with the advent of Jesus, change has come. Something's going to change, right? And, and he's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And you and I, I think, are to be the agents of that change. In the last verse, the fourth reason for joy that Isaac Watts gives us, is that Jesus rules with truth and grace and righteousness and love. I've said this so often, some of you probably tire of hearing it. I pray it so very often. If you pray with me at all, you'll hear me pray this. But I am so thankful that this being that we talked about, remember the being who's eternal and creator and he's always been? I'm so thankful that he is who he is. And what I, mean, what I mean by that, if there is a being like we believe there is a being, this, this being who's eternal, all-powerful, he could have been a sadist. He could have been filled with hate. He could have said, God is hate, but God is love, right? He could have been the opposite of who God really is. And had he been the opposite, we, he could have created us to toy with us, to, to torture us, to do all kinds of terrible things to us. That's who he could have been, but it's not who he is. And so Sir Isaac Watts in this fourth verse says, he rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. Don't miss that. Sir Isaac Watts is reminding us that God loves the world and all the nations of the world. And his love for all the nations of the world proves both his righteousness and the wonders of his love. See, I mean, that verse has always troubled me. Does it trouble you at all? And maybe not trouble. I don't know what it meant. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. What does that mean? I've always sung the song. I guess I've never... I spent a week looking into it. So I, now, this is what I think Sir Isaac Watts meant by this, right? He meant that the nations, because of his love for them, the nations prove his righteousness and his love. His love for the nations, his relationship to the nations proves both his righteousness and his love. Let's see if I can't explain this a little bit better. The Jews so mistook their role as God's nation. Listen to me. They weren't chosen to be saved. They weren't chosen so that, you know, somehow or another, by virtue of their parentage, they were going to be in God's eternal kingdom. They weren't chosen for that purpose. 
They were chosen instead to take his love, his, the knowledge of him to the world. God told Abraham, he said, through you, and then consequently through one of his sons, and then another of his sons, another of his grandsons, and then through a bunch of his grandsons, they were going to be the people that would be chosen that all the nations would be blessed through them. But the Jews weren't chosen by virtue of being Abraham's prodigy to be saved. You have always been saved and made right with God by faith, by God's grace, never by our, by our own efforts. And God chose them to be messengers of God's grace to them. And so Isaac Watts says that because Jesus rules the whole world, because he has a love for all the ethnic peoples of the world, it proves God is righteous, that he's not a respecter of persons, that whosoever will may come. You see, when, when, the, when the, the, God makes the nations prove his righteousness because anybody from any nation can come to him. And the nations prove the wonder of his love. His love isn't limited to just Israel. I mean, I feel so sorry for them sometimes and the fact that they so mistook God's love. And God loves all people. God has always loved all people of every ethnic background. He hasn't just loved the Jews. He's always loved the Jews and the Gentiles. Anybody who puts their faith in him belongs to him. He's always loved all of us. The Jews were chosen to be a vessel to, to take that good news to the world. It's kind of like if I, you know, if I took one of my kids and I said, hey, listen, I got cake for everyone. Would you, Katie, take the cake to the rest of them? I'm not just giving cake to Katie. I'm telling Katie, take the cake to all your siblings. And it's the same way God chose Israel to take his blessings to all the nations. And Sir Isaac Watts in, in song is saying to us, the nations and God's love for the nations proves both his righteousness, that he's not a respecter of persons, and it's, it proves his loving kindness because he loves all men everywhere, Jews and Gentiles. Man, I pray that you and I will never sing this song the same. That when we sing, he makes the nations prove both his righteousness and his love, that we'll remember that God loves all the nations. God is, God is longing for all the nations to come to him, and it proves his righteousness, and it proves his loving kindness to us. And I think it's so fitting that Watts would end the song with this line, and the wonders of his love, and the wonders of his love, and the wonders, and the wonders of his love. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.